being Job now. And we start in Genesis, yeah, but I just thought uh, that Job was uh, lived during the time of Genesis. So that's why we put it in there um, in our reading in Genesis as well. Um, I, I, lo- I love that near the end of the chapter, and they, they came to comfort him. And if you know anything about what happens, like the next eight to 25 chapters, they don't comfort him at all. <laughs> and they kind of uh, r- run him through the ringer. Uh, very, but encourage you to read on. Um, at this time, we'll dismiss our children for children's worship. Right back here, Miss Michelle has a Grace Kids sign. And if you would like, to, if you're up through the fourth grade, if you would like to uh, go and uh, learn God's Word with some kiddos your age, you're welcome to do that. And with some kiddos not so uh, your age, they just a little look a little bigger. Kids at heart. <coughs> and I'll ask the rest of you if you would take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter seven. Now, you're wondering, if you've been with us for a while, why are we going to the Gospel of John, chapter 7? All right, aren't we going through the book of Acts? Yes, we are, but I've been gone for two weeks. And in order for me to prepare uh, a um, message in the book of Acts, I'm going to need more than uh, getting home at 10.30 last night um, from 14 hours on the road, right? And being gone, I taught all week at a camp as well. Um, Every single day, we were at a camp I've been doing for 24 years now. Um, and then before that, we were vacationing, seeing family and stuff like that. But I'm glad to be back and um, uh, as well. I know Jared's been gone, and I've been gone. And last week, you retreated to Justin Tubbs. I know it's summer, so people, a lot of people are in and out. Um, and uh, somebody said we had a really low su- Sunday last summer. We're a little low this last Sunday. Uh, we're a little low this morning. And if you didn't get a chance to hear Justin, of course, you can go to our website. And usually, lately, we've been seeing the... the uh, messages get up there within a half an hour of after the worship service is done so even when I've been on the road a little bit I can just on Sunday boom I can pull it up on my iPhone and put it in my if I'm driving I can plug it into my auxiliary and um, some of you probably can Bluetooth in your cars Um, but uh, uh, and listen to it I encourage you to do that I I know it was good more than conquerors from Romans Um, so this morning uh, and uh, thought that this passage would be very helpful and encouraging, hopefully, to us, challenging. It is to me. Uh, when I taught through the Gospel of John, this was one in my own life, personally, that uh, stuck out and brought great conviction and hopefully change in my life. And I thought this morning it would be appropriate for us to look at this passage again. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 24. Um, uh, and I'm going to read all that in one uh, one go. Uh, uh, in one reading here, and then we'll go back and look at it. Um, but the message, of this, the title of the message this morning is, The Lord Looks at the Heart. The Lord Looks at the Heart. Beginning in verse 14. When he was now in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, how, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered and said to them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. Did not Moses give you the law and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you, you have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one deed and you all marvel. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, 
but judge with righteous judgment. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we uh, come to you again together, gathered on a Sunday morning uh, in this building, uh, your people, uh, those that you have called to be the church, your bride. And Lord, we uh, come hungry, we uh, come needy, uh, we come expecting you to do great things in our lives, to bring about change, to conform us more and more into the image of your Son. And Lord, uh, we expect that because you promised that. And we understand that it won't happen unless you make it happen. Unless you move through the power of the Holy Spirit and the preaching and teaching and the understanding and the application of your word. So we pray you would do that now. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you a question this morning. Have you ever been deceived by the outward appearance of a situation or the outward appearance of a person or an event? Have you ever been deceived? You, you looked at something, you looked at someone, you saw something, and you thought one thing, and in reality, you figured out it was something else. All right? Uh, I remember my junior year of high school, a particular football game against... Portsmouth, Ohio. Now, I grew up on the Ohio River on the Kentucky side, and we would play some people in, in Ohio and people in West Virginia um, as well in our non-conference games, our non-district games, and we played Portsmouth, Ohio, the Portsmouth Trojans, all right, and uh, this one took my junior year, and they came out for pregame warm-ups, and I still remember, we were out on the field, and I still remember them coming down, we had the, our field house kind of set up on this hill, and they came down these stairs, and I saw them running down the field, and I saw these two guys running out right next to each other, about 6'4", about 6'5", six, six, about 275. And they weren't like sloppy, joppy guys, big guys. They, were, they looked good. I mean, they just run the forms good. I just, oh, my eyes got about this big. And, and they ran, they're going through their drills, and they can move, too. It wasn't just big guys. They could actually move. And uh, just incredible-looking athletes. And I think that we had one lineman over six foot tall, all right, and most of them were under 200 pounds. And in fact, one of our starting offensive guards was five foot eight, 175 pounds, soaking wet. All right, on a good day, probably at the end of a hot day game, he was in the 160s, five foot eight. And uh, looking at the size difference, obviously from the stands, uh, you would think, and I know many people did, we were going to get annihilated by these guys. They, 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 those, were the, those were their biggest guys, but even their medium guys were bigger than our biggest guys. Just huge. And yet at the end of the game, the score read, Russell Red Devils, that's who I played for, I played for the Devils, all right? All right, Russell Red Devils, 28. Portsmouth, Trojans, seven. <laughs> seven, 28 to seven. It was the exact opposite of the way it should have, at least it looked, it should have happened. They looked like they should have just torn us apart, but no one took into account the heart or determination or the preparation of our linemen, even though they were smaller. In fact, the guy I told you who was five foot eight, 175 pounds, this guy in high school benched 330 pounds at 175 pounds. I mean, that is stout. I'll tell you what, that is super stout. And um, we other guys were just tough. We had one guy, I mean, if you wanted to go to, if you were going to get in a fight, you'd want him. He was about 5'10", 260, all right? And he was just tough. He was, he, I think he ate nails for breakfast. There's a lot of things you couldn't see on the outside. 
You couldn't see all the, 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 the way that they played as a team, the way they believed in each other. Uh, you, they weren't 6'4", 6'5", 275. And this is a simple example of how often we make judgments purely from the outward appearance of things. We, we'd all agree we do that often, just from the outward appearance of things. Uh, we do this with people. We do this when it comes from <clears throat> often the truth of the Word of God. Uh, this has always been a problem, even with people who love the Lord. Right? I know there's a lot of people in here this morning that really love the Lord. And yet we often make judgments on outward appearance only. And this was evident when the Lord told Samuel to look for a new king, right? You all remember this? And he comes to Jesse and Jesse's sons, and they all come before Samuel, and he's thinking, surely this guy, I mean, this guy looks good. He looks like Saul did, which is part of the, part of the problem. The head and shoulders, tall, dark, and handsome, and I always use Clint Roofley. Clint must be working this morning as an example. Not that, Clint's got a good heart, though. He, wasn't, he was more David Hart, Saul body, okay? And, uh, but this, the, and, and now we don't know about his brothers as so much their heart, but they look good, and, and Sam's going, oh, it's got to be that guy. It's got to be that guy. It's got to be that guy. And if um, you remember there in 1 Samuel 7, notice what the Lord says to Samuel about this. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his, at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees, not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Question for us. Do we look at the outward appearance only? Or do we do what the Lord does and try as best we can with his help to look at the heart? Our passage of scripture here in John this morning will give us some insight into our hearts and how we can view things from his perspective. So we're going to work down through these verses, verses 14 through 24, and we'll see Jesus unmask the hearts of the people and, and, and show them that they were more concerned about the outward appearance than they were about the heart. And they were more concerned about the show than they were the substance. They were more concerned about the frills than they were the foundation. And after we work our way down through this passage of scripture, <clears throat> um, uh, and come to an understanding as to what the Lord is trying to teach us, then I want to present three exhortations to all of us to help us be more like Jesus and look at the heart. All right, let's briefly look at the context here of this passage of Scripture since we're dropping into John this morning. At the beginning of John 7, Jesus' brothers want him to go up to Jerusalem during the Feast of Booths where there'd be a huge crowd. Now, why would they want him to do that? And when you, if you read this, they want him to go up, make himself known, I'm the Son of God, I'm the Messiah, let's get a big crowd, let's do some miracles, and they're, the, they're going to ride on his coattails, and hopefully we can take down the Romans in the midst of this. Because you've got a huge crowd, you've got an army waiting for you, right, Jesus? Well, let's go do that. So they want him to go up and present himself in this way. Their motivation was wrong. Uh, and Jesus, of course, refused to go to Jerusalem right when they wanted to. He refused to go to, and to Jerusalem and present himself in the way that they wanted him to. Before Jesus made himself known at the feast, many of the Jewish leaders were seeking to kill him. They wanted him dead. And, and there was also discussion going among the people in general that brought division. They were divided on who Jesus was. Some said he was a, it was a good teacher. Others said, no, he's a deceiver. And of course, neither one of these were true. We, you learn back at the beginning of the Gospel of John, John the Baptist gives it away. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's who Jesus was. He wasn't a, a deceiver. He was not going to be a Messiah like they wanted. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And um, the people didn't want to hear that. His brothers didn't want to hear that. No one wanted to hear that. 
uh, as far as th this crowd, the crowd that was following him, and the crowd that they wanted him to present himself to. So this is where our passage of Scripture picks up here this morning. Uh, Jesus does show up in his timing, in his way, with the right heart, and begins teaching. Look there at verse 14 again with me. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. Jesus makes himself known in the midst or the middle of the feast. I mean, he had, he had already started. I mean, I mean, the, I mean the, the feast had already started. So it had already started. They were already having these festivities going on. And he shows up. And yet he shows up in a different way than his brothers wanted him to. He shows up teaching in the temple. Look at me at verse 15 and notice um, what happens. The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? Now, we don't know exactly what he said, what he was specifically teaching on. But whatever it was, it got their attention. I would love to have been there to hear what he had to say and what he was teaching. Uh, now, we got lots of things that he did teach, and, and I'm sure it was just as amazing um, as the other things that we have recorded as far as what he taught. The fact is, it says they were astonished, and they marveled at Jesus and his teaching. Now, this was nothing new, was it? Uh, you, you, you see this earlier in Jesus' ministry, in his time in Galilee before coming to Jerusalem. Look what it says in Matthew about his teaching. Well, we don't have that up here. That's okay. I'll tell you what it says. Matthew 7, 28-29 says this. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For his teaching, he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. They, were, they marveled at what he had to say. They were amazed at his teaching because he taught with one who had authority. Now this was also said about Jesus when he was uh, preaching in his hometown. So this is not the first time in John, or Matthew was not the other, other time, but another time in his ministry, they marveled, they were amazed at his teaching. Uh, it, it says um, here in our passage this morning, how has this man become learned having never been educated? Uh, what do they mean by this question? What do they mean by this question? How had he become learned without ever being educated? They were saying that he didn't have the right credentials. You see, he had never gone uh, to the Jewish rabbinical schools like they had. They, nobody saw him sitting in their class. And I'm sure he was a contemporary age-wise to many of these men. And they never saw him. They knew he had not been to rabbinical school. In today's language, we'd be saying something like this. He doesn't have his master's or doctorate degree from the certified schools that you're supposed to have it from. Right? That's what they're saying. He didn't have the diplomas hanging on the wall. Jesus basically says to them, he says, it's what he says, he says, my teaching is not mine, but he who has sent me. And he's basically saying, you're right. I don't have my doctorate, I don't have my master's, I don't even have my bachelor's from the certified schools that you're talking about. I've been taught by the Father. Ooh. He's been taught by the Father. You see that when a rabbi taught, he didn't teach the scriptures. Instead, he taught by quoting other rabbis before him. That's how a rabbi taught. You wouldn't teach the scriptures. You would teach what the other rabbis taught. And you just quote rabbi so-and-so, rabbi so-and-so, rabbi so-and-so as you taught. And, and, and they quoted um, what the rabbi said, not about the scriptures, but about writings that interpreted the law. So this is interesting. This is really far away. I want to see how far away this is in the scriptures. Here's the scriptures. 
here's the interpretations of the scriptures by other rabbis. Here's what other rabbis had to say about the rabbis who gave their interpretation of what the scripture said. And here's the other rabbis who quoted those rabbis who quoted those rabbis who quoted those rabbis. And you just keep going like that. And how far can you get away from the scripture when you do something like that? Pretty far. And by this time, they were way far away from the scriptures. And in fact, the writings that interpret the, the Torah or the Pentateuch fill up 26 volumes in English of the first five books of our Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, no. And Acts. How about this? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The five books of the law. 26 volumes in English. And they're not paperback small volumes. They're big volumes. 26 volumes. In these writings, they basically pull God's glory down to a place where God's righteousness could be easily attained by human effort. For example, in trying to explain how a person was not to work on the Sabbath, they had a law that said a person could not, uh, that could ladle out soup, okay? You could put the ladle in the soup, but you couldn't stir the soup. But you could go with the ladle from right to left before you brought it out. Thus, stirring the soup. As long as there's no circular motion in your stir, you were not stirring the soup and therefore did not break the law of working on the Sabbath. Now we laugh at that and yet there's thousands of laws like that in those writings that interpret the law. And that's sad, isn't it? Also, there are elevators in Israel that uh, don't have, but, that, that just work on them by themselves on, on, on the Sabbath, alright, on Saturday on the Sabbath. They stop at every single floor. Therefore, people won't have to push the button and thus work on the Sabbath to keep the Sabbath. Be careful before we get too uh, um, judgmental on these people, right? Before we start pointing fingers. Yeah, there's a problem here. Um, so these rabbis would quote these crazy interpretations of the law. Instead, what Jesus was doing, he spoke of heaven like he'd been there. He spoke of the Father like he had spoken with the Father. Completely different from what anybody else had heard from any of the other rabbis. He didn't quote the other rabbis. He quoted, he, he quoted the Father. In fact, it came straight from the Father. More than just quoting the Father, think about this. Jesus doesn't even have to say, thus says the Lord. Think about this. Jesus does not have to say, thus says the Lord, to be speaking truth. He can say, as he does other places in John, truly, truly, I say to you. And every word that proceeded out of his mouth was the word of God, because he was God. So he didn't have to quote anyone. Anything he spoke was the word of God. Notice what it says here in verse 17. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know the teaching whether it's of God or whether I speak from myself. Here Jesus says, being able to discern whether or not the teaching of God is not dependent on being able to quote from some rabbi. But a heart that was committed to do God's will would lead to the truth. A humble, submissive, willing heart to obey the truth is a prerequisite to understanding the truth. Think about this. A heart that willing, willingly submits itself humbles itself before the word of God with a willingness to obey the word of God that's how they can understand the word of God instead of coming over the word of God 
you come under the word of God and submit to it and this is a commitment of faith this comes from trusting that it is God's word trusting he will come through on all that he has said it's not that a person attains saving knowledge through obedience please don't hear that you obey and then God gives you saving knowledge that's not what I'm saying at all that's not what Jesus is saying obviously but by faith there's a willingness to embrace God's truth whatever's coming down the pipe that's what I love about so many people here at Grace I've seen it over and over again especially newer believers I've had conversations with them and we're, we're reading the word we're talking about the word together and they'll say, they'll say okay this is what the word of God's saying yeah that's what it looks that's what it's saying yeah. alright I'm in and some of those I'm in for some of these people have been very difficult decisions to put away habit patterns of their past but that's all they had known sometimes it's, 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 it's making a public stand on something that they know they need to do because the word of God is instructing them to do so and they say I'm in that's a willing humble heart isn't it not willing that's kind of tough uh, so I think I'm going to have to think about this a little bit and, and I've thought about it long enough and I'm not in that's not the kind of heart that Jesus speaks of here now Jesus gives a little insight as to how to discern now whether a teacher is from God or not look at verse 18 he who speaks from himself seeks only his, uh, his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Here Jesus differentiates between two types of teachers, all right? So let's say this is teacher one over here. Teacher one. Teacher one speaks from himself. His source is found in man, i.e., quote a rabbi. All right? Also teacher one, because that he speaks from himself, he seeks his own glory, and his message is a self-exalting message. That's teacher one. All right? Then you have teacher two. He seeks the glory of God. He speaks from God. His source is God. And it's a God-exalting message. You see the difference? Teacher one exalts himself. His source is himself versus other men. It's a man-exalting message. Teacher 2 seeks the glory of God, speaks from God, quotes God. And it's a God-exalting message. Obviously, it's teacher 2 who is true, and therefore there is no unrighteousness in him. And Jesus, of course, was referring to himself here. All right, he's, he's, he's pitting himself against the teacher's there that they have a hard time with him the rabbis is, is showing them that your message is self-exalting it has no power it has no substance it has no foundation and yet my message exalts God it comes from God it's about God Jesus says if your authority and wisdom come from yourself you are a self-worshipper the Jewish leaders and teachers were obviously just like this but if your authority and wisdom come from the father then you are a God worshiper now a little side note here this is a great way to discern whether a teacher is from the Lord or not it's a great way we just take Jesus' words here do they point people to God is, is God's word central to their teaching do they help us understand the word of God does it make us rely on ourselves or rely upon God just because a teacher is educated articulate, dynamic does not mean they're from God hear that just because you're educated articulate 
And dynamic does not mean they're from God. And let me say this too. It also, means, it also doesn't mean that they're not from God. We would be very careful about that. There's a whole sect of people who think, well, if you have any kind of formal education, you're not from God. That's wrong. Okay, that's wrong. People need to be trained. They need to be taught how to study the scripture and to preach God-exalting messages and to have God-exalting ministries and things being about God and understand God's word. So don't think just because... I'm not saying, and Jesus isn't saying, that education is wrong. But if you're relying on your education only and not the spirit of God and it's not God-exalting, then it is wrong. All right? So it's not... Education isn't wrong. Please don't hear that. All right? The substance of the message is the most important thing. The substance of... The message is the most important thing. There was once an Indian who was a Christian man and after a service in a particular church and the sermon did not have much substance or truth in it. It wasn't God exalting. But it was very loud. And someone asked the Indian man what he thought of the sermon. And he said, well, high wind, big thunder, no rain. All right, and this is exactly what Paul wrote, or what we find in, in Jude 12, talking about the false teachers. These men who are, and it goes on and on, and it says they're clouds without water. Clouds without water. You ever seen? Now, we live close to the Gulf, so sometimes we'll have a lot of clouds. Look, it looks like it's going to rain, and you're, everybody's running. Get the children inside. We've got a huge storm coming. We've had a lot of these this spring and early summer, right? But you, you, look at those clouds. It's terrible. And they go running for cover. And then you keep waiting, and you keep waiting, and you keep waiting, and nothing comes. It just looks like it's going to come. It just looks like there's something there, but there's nothing there. That's like false teachers are, and that's what, that, 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 that's what Jesus basically said about these guys, the way you teach. There's no substance. There's nothing there worth listening to. There's no God-changing truth in their words. Well, it's now time for Jesus to get to the heart of these people he's teaching in the temple. Look at verse 19. Did not Moses give the law, and yet none of you are, carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The Jewish nation prided themselves on keeping the law, but they failed miserably and would not admit it. Jesus, living a righteous, lived a perfect, righteous life, yet they sought to kill him. Look at the, the, the irony here. All right? They were breaking the law right and left, trying to come up with things to cover themselves. Jesus never broke the law, ever, and yet they want to kill him. He was the epitome of what they wanted to be and that they wanted to kill him. Any large crowd in the temple would most likely include some of the Jewish leaders who wanted to kill Jesus. Uh, their desire to kill him shows that they did not keep the law. Because what does it say in Exodus 20, 13 in the Ten Commandments? You shall not murder. And that's exactly what they wanted to do to Jesus. At this, the Jew, Jews said, it should have said, when they heard Jesus um, speak these words in 19, why do you seek to kill me? I, I, none of you carry out the law. They should have all said, Jesus, you're right. We're a bunch of hypocrites. We've sinned. We've been pretending for a long time. And now that you've come on the scene, we see why you're here. We see that you speak from the Father. We repent. We want to know the Father. Show us the Father. That should have been the response. But is that the response? Now look at verse 20. The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who, who, who seeks to kill you? They say Jesus is insane. He has a paranoid complex, right? Everybody's trying to get me. You ever met somebody like that? Everybody's out after me. And that's what they're saying about Jesus. You, you, nobody's out to kill you. You've got to be kidding. You're, you're making things up, Jesus. 
Instead of repenting of their sin, they seek to divert the attention from themselves and make outlandish statements about the one, the only one, who can save them from their sin. Here they have the Messiah standing in front of them, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, and they do this, no thanks. No thanks. We don't want you. Jesus is not done at getting to, at their hearts, though. Look at verses 21 through 23. Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marvel. For this reason Moses has given you circumcision, not because it's from, the, from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? It's obvious what one deed he speaks of here. He says, I did one de deed and you all marvel. You all upset for, at me for one deed. And the one deed he's speaking of is his last trip to Jerusalem when he healed the lame man and had him carry his pallet. He carried his mat. And that's found in, in chapter 5 of John. The fact that he healed on the Sabbath and then claimed to have authority over the Sabbath, thus claiming to be God, resulted in what is recorded in John 5.18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he had not, not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, during his teaching in John 7 in the temple, Jesus points back to this healing of the lame man to illustrate just where the hearts of these people were. He, he compares and contrasts th this healing of the lame man on the Sabbath with the practice of circumcising a male Jew on the eighth day. And yet the Jewish people were not to do any regular work on the Sabbath. Now think about this. What were they to do if the eighth day of the boy's life fell on the Sabbath? Did they circumcise? Think about this. Did they circumcise on other days of the week if it fell on the eighth day? Yes. If it was Tuesday, that's the eighth day of the boy's life, they circumcised him. If it was Wednesday or Thursday or Friday, they circumcised the boy on the eighth day. If it was the Sabbath, they circumcised the boy on the eighth day. So would that be considered a regular work like you did every other day? You bet it would because they circumcised on all the other days. I mean, their argument makes no sense at all. You don't have to do any kind of regular work that you would do on another, on another day. And this is one of those things that they did every day. They circumcised boys on the eighth day no matter what day it was. And yet Jesus does the one work of healing this lame man on the Sabbath and they're ready to string him up. I love what R.C. Sproul says here. If the law of Moses required that the sign of a person's wellness be given on the Sabbath day, how could the Jewish leaders object when Jesus healed man completely on the Sabbath day? How could they? Well, Jesus answers how they could and how they did in verse 24. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Jesus rebukes them for being more concerned with what things look like than what is right. What things look like, excuse me, or what is right. Which one? Well, Jesus condemns them for being more concerned what things look like. And they were more concerned about the outward appearance than the inward attitude. And D.A. Carson here, if their approach to God's 
will were one of faith, they would soon discern that Jesus is not a Sabbath breaker, but the one who fulfills both Sabbath and circumcision. The right heart, one placing their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, will always lead to right action if the heart is determined to glorify God. They'll always lead to right action. Whether, no matter what the, the rules say, right? No matter what mankind says. No matter what other things we have set up to protect ourselves from other people or uncomfortable situations. If our heart is bent on glorifying God, then we'll do what is right. Regardless of the way it looks on the outside. Regardless of what the crowd says we should be doing. Jesus dissected their hearts and revealed that they were... There were those hearts uh, that their hearts were fully devoted to style and show instead of the, subs the substance that the Savior brought them. If you remember, if you want to look into your Bibles very briefly here, look back at John 2 with me. John 2. And this is a, is a critical point in the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's just performed... Um, a miracle at Canaan. He's cleansed the temple. And if you look. Verse 23 actually of chapter 2. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover. During the feast. Many people or many believed in his name. Observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them. For he knew all men. And because he did not do anything. He did not need anyone to testify concerning man. For he himself knew what was in man. Now, if you remember, if you were here when we went through the Gospel of John, you'll know the worst possible thing we can do is stop right there. Do not let the numbers get in your way. They're not inerrant. They were placed there to help us find where we're supposed to be. Now, let's read ver verse 25 again. Because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man. What's he getting ready to do? Illustrate that he knows the heart of all men. There was a man named Nicodemus in this whole account of Nicodemus. And the rest of the book, that's why I love the Gospel of John, he gets to the heart of people. The woman at the well, he gets to her heart. He continually gets to the heart of Jewish leaders and exposes their hearts because he knows what's in their hearts. Let me, let me promise you all, this is one of the greatest gifts we can possibly ha have that Jesus knows our hearts. And he lovingly exposes our hearts so we can see our sin and need for a Savior. That's so important. To see that. And that's what he's doing right here with these Jewish leaders. We talked about this when I was here last time about Acts 5. Remember that, that, that Peter is giving this sermon. He's basically telling them, you're guilty of killing your Messiah. You're guilty of killing your Messiah. And you are, you, you are guilty of God's judgment. And he doesn't stop there and say, go to hell and have a nice trip. He does it for the purpose of showing them sin and need for a Savior. Then he says, but God sent Jesus for that Israel might turn, they might repent. And be saved. And Jesus all through John exposes the heart of men because he knows what's in their heart so they would repent. Not so he'd just say, hey, you're going to hell, have a nice trip. It's always for purpose so they may see their sin and be saved. Isn't that good news? That's the way the Savior does it. Well, how about us? How about you and me? Do we, first of all, even try to discern the heart of the issue or do we only look at the outward appearance are we only concerned about style and substance and power and prestige and position 
Are we concerned about the truth? Or are we so concerned, quote-unquote, about the, ter- the truth that we only share half the truth when it makes us feel good? And we don't really care about the heart. And therefore, we don't care about the person. Remember, if we're ever in a debate, if we're ever in a co- conversation with a non-believer, the goal is not to win the debate. It's to win the person. To win the person. Well, I promised you, I give, you th- give us three exhortations to help be like Jesus and look at the heart. When we think about, do we look at the outward appearance of people or do we look at the heart? First exhortation is look at the heart by being a Berean. Look at the heart by being a Berean. Look at Acts 17, 11. What, uh, uh, we'll get to this eventually here when we're saying through Acts, but uh, what is said here, it says, Luke records, now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether the things, these things were so. How do we judge a teacher? How do we judge those, as, as Jesus is here, standing up and, and saying that they're speaking for God? How do we do that? Well, first of all, let me tell you, this is very important, isn't it? We're bombarded now in our society by more teachers than the history of the world. We have more access to more people claiming to speak for God, being teachers of God, than any time in the history of our world, ever. Don't we? We boom, just go on your car, turn on your... Your, your iPhone, your iPod, your, your uh, whatever your other smartphones there are, right? Um, turn on your computer. You can just get all you want anytime you want. What we allow into our hearts and lives by the way of teaching will partly determine how we grow in our relationship with the Lord. What we're listening to will affect us. It'll either make us more and more like Jesus or it'll make us more and more like the world one or the other do we look at the outward appearance to try to discern or do we try to discern the heart judging a teacher by the outward appearance was obviously a big deal in Jesus's day and often it's an a-, a big deal in our day as well the Bereans judged the apostles the apostles by the word of God How much more should we judge everything we hear from any teacher of the Word of God by the Word of God? We need to judge by Jesus' standard. It goes beyond the surface. Remember teacher number one? He speaks from himself. His source is found in man. He seeks to glorify himself. It's it's a man-exalting message. Teacher number two. He seeks to glorify God. He speaks from God. The Word of God is his source. It's a God-exalting message so that God is glorified at the end of it. It's like Martin Lord Jones, who was a famous preacher in London back in the 20th century. We're in the 21st century, back in the 20th century. And he used to say, my goal is every time I preach that people walk out of here and don't say, oh, what a great man I am. They say, oh, what a great Savior he serves. That's what we want to do. That's, that's a message that exalts God, exalts Jesus Christ. Well, let me ask this question. Who's on your playlist? Who's on your playlist? Who, who are you listening to? What are you reading? Who are you reading? Let me encourage all of us 
to look at the heart by being a re- by being a Berean and use the scriptures to discern whether it's from God or not. Now I promise you, I've told you all this many times. If you've been here for been here, I'm in, in my 13th year, about 12 and a half years now, and I've told you this many times. Um, when I, I I was a terrible reader growing up, I, I just could not read well at all. People made fun of me. The Jones twins, who read right in front of me in second grade, they could read like crazy. Then it came to me, and uh, but, 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 but I hated to read. I had to read all the way through high school, and I did book reports by reading the first chapter, the second chapter, and the last chapter of every book. The fewer chapters there were in between, the better grade I got. All right? That's just the highway. I hated to read. And somebody gave me a Christian book about a football player when I was in college, and how I got to college, I'm not even sure. And I read it, and I was interested in the subject, and I read it, and I kind of liked it. So I got another one, and I read it. And I began to read Christian books right and left. And then before the summer of my senior year of college, um, I was back when my parents had moved. My dad was pastoring another church in Kentucky at the time. And, and, I, and I sat down to this older gentleman um, named Graham Harvey. And me, me and my friend did. We tried to sit with Graham every Wednesday. I mean, he just exuded the love of God. I mean, he knew the Lord. and just, just knew it. And you wanted to hear everything he had to say. So we sat down to, to, next to Graham like we always did. And I said, hey, Graham, have you read this book? It was like the hottest, greatest Christian book out there at the time. And Graham just humbly said, well, Brian, I think I've got that book. Somebody gave me that book. But you know, and his Bible's sitting right next to him by we're eating right next to his food. And he goes, but there's so much that I don't know about this. I don't have time to read anything else. Mr. Reading Christian Book Man here. And it convicted me. And then sometimes I can be an extremist. I didn't read another Christian book for like two years. <laughs> except the Bible. And I'm glad God brought that along. So now, even, you know, not perfectly, but now I can take, and I, you've seen this illustration, if you've been here, if not, this is maybe new to you. I take every single book that I read, everything I hear, every, everything I read, and I take it through the Word of God like a paper shredder. And I promise you, every book will come out t- tear, tattered. It'll have some rips in it because it's not inerrant. It's not God's Word. All right? Understand that. And the ones that are a little tattered up, you probably can keep theirs. There's probably some truth in there. The ones that come out and there's nothing left, you better throw those things away. But we have to use the Word of God. We've got to be a Berean. We've got to discern. We've got to judge based upon the Word of God. Let me just say this too. Nowhere in the Bible does it say you're not allowed to judge. Anybody ever heard that? Don't judge. And that's it. Just shut it off. We've probably all heard that. And I'm not going to ask who said that in here, okay? All right? It's so wrong. We make judgments every day. We're called as Christians actually to make judgments. We're called to judge rightly. And we judge what we hear in teaching by the word of God, just like the Brigands did. Secondly, look at the heart by being honest about your sin. Look at the heart by being honest about your sin. The Lord made it clear that although the people prided themselves in keeping the law, they did not even come close. Instead, they brought God's glory down to a standard that they could get over. If you go read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus does the exact opposite. He gets to the heart of the law, and he doesn't really raise the law. He just shows them what it really looks like. And they're not even close. They couldn't keep it in a million years. We need to look at our heart and examine our heart. And examine our heart by the standard that God brings before us. And then when he brings conviction, we need to understand that is a gift from God. As he convicts our heart, to show us where we need to grow, where do we need, where we need to turn, where we need to change. We have hope in the midst of conviction, not condemnation. 
The Spirit is a skillful surgeon. He knows right where we need it. He gets into the, the recesses, it says, of our heart. The Word of God, through the Word of God. And He divides soul and spirit. Gets us to the very depths of our heart to show us right where we, what we need and how we need to change. And this is a great thing. And then He changes us. Isn't that great? He didn't say, hey, go change yourself. Here's an impossible standard to put others before yourself. We talked about this this week at camp. And then gives us no power to do it. That'd be terrible. That'd be cruel. That would be hell. Think about that. I used this illustration this week. If I were going to broad jump over here, no run to Billy. Raise your hand, Billy. That would be the world record by about six times in the standing broad jump. Not running. I mean, it, it, Carl Lewis couldn't even jump that far and running. All right? Just stand there and go. It's an impossible tax. And God's saying, you got to do it or you're not going to make it. I'm going to be upset with you if you can't do that. You're terrible. I'm in trouble. But if somehow God put in me like the ability to physically fly, I could... My feet aren't touching the ground. All right? And I could fly and I'm not going to land in your lap. And I could land right on top of Billy. That's what God does. He gives us something impossible to do to bring about change in the deepest recesses of our heart. And then he gives us the power and the desire to do it. How gracious is that? Conviction brings hope that we can change. That's great news. That's what's called the gospel. Thirdly, look at the heart by judging based on God's word and not man's wisdom. Jesus indicted these believers, these, or these, these people, in, in verse 24, for being all about style, all, instead of what was true. They were, they were more concerned about form instead of the foundation. Outward religious acts instead of the heart of change. On what do you base your judgment? What are you trusting in to make you right with God? That's one judgment we need to make. Man's wisdom says this, just do as good as you can, Maybe you can get a great education, do a bunch of religious acts, and you're good with God. That's man's wisdom. God's wisdom says this. It's by grace through faith. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's what God says. How are you trying to make yourself right with God? There's only one way. It's by grace through faith. How are you daily living as a follower of Jesus? Self-empowered? or spirit-empowered? Self-empowered or spirit-empowered? By what are you judging others? Man's wisdom says education, outward appearance, religious acts, pray eloquently. We look at somebody's life and boy, they can do all that. Ooh, man, they like really in with God. God says people who love God, they love others, they love His Word, they trust Him in the midst of trials, i.e. Job, they trust Him in the midst of successes. There's contentment in their life. That looks like someone who loves God. That looks like somebody who's following after God. Uh, remember this quote by a guy named Lou Tepper, who was a uh, um, head football coach at the University of Illinois back in the uh, early to mid-90s. And he had one quote on his locker room. It said this, Prejudice is a great time saver. It allows us to come to a conclusion without getting all the facts. Prejudice is a great time saver. It allows us to come to the conclusion without getting all the facts. 
We can be prejudiced about a lot of things, right? We prejudge. We don't take the time to get all the facts. We don't take the time to look at the heart. And not only with false teachers, and Jesus is kind of dealing with that here, but just in people in general. We look at somebody's life and say, oh man, can you believe that? Have you talked with them? Have you asked them? You saw something, okay, and that something went up, but well, I need to talk with them at least, right? Sometimes we don't do that. We just see one thing, and we immediately conclude this is it. And we never ask. And, and, and maybe we see something that looks terrible in, in their life. It may look bad, and, and we just sit back and say, man, that's terrible. God must be upset with them. I'm not going to get around them. We have no idea what's going on in their heart and their mind and their life. And then we walk into the situation, we talk to them, and all of a sudden we begin to see what's really going on. When we become more understanding, we begin to see the heart of the matter because we begin to ask questions because we love them. Now we can also do this. Man, that guy must really be looking at walking with God. I mean, he's got a church of like 20,000 people. I'll listen to him. Or that, other people will say, man, that guy's really walking with God. He's got a church of 15. I mean, they're like the, the chosen frozen. All right, they are really walking with God because only 15 of them, everybody else has got it wrong. So they must be the one. See how you can do it either way. That's outward appearance judging no matter how it goes. Instead of getting to the heart, we prejudge. We don't, we, 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 we like time savers, right? We come to the conclusion without getting all the facts. And the Lord Jesus would say, no, get to the heart of things. Get to the heart of things. May God, by his grace, empower us to look at the heart of things. Judging not based upon our opinion, or man's opinion, but of God's work, God's word, and the spirit of God within us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you how clear this is. But Lord, it's not easy. It's so much easier to um, not have to think about things, not have to examine things from your word by the power of the spirit. Lord, I pray you'd help us do that. Lord, you call us to do it, yes. But you give us the power and the desire to accomplish all that you call us to do. Lord, thank you for that great news. Thank you for the news that gives us life. In Jesus' name, amen.